If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We're going to be finishing up the chapter 4 of Hebrews, and we're going to be looking at what the author is going to be saying in these three verses. And he's going to give us some incredible insight into the person and the work of Jesus for us today. If there's one thing that is true for all of us, no matter your personality, no matter where you rank on an Enneagram or a Myers-Briggs or whatever personality test that may be, we all long for sympathy. Some of us more than others, um, especially if you're like me, if you're a feeler on the Myers-Briggs, you long for connection, you long for sympathy, um, more so probably an unnecessary amount. Um, But all of us desire sympathy. That's human nature. We long to sympathize with others who are going through something. And when we are going through something, we long for someone to show sympathy to us. It's only human nature. If I were to, to prove this point, if I were to come to you a year ago, let's rewind the clock a year. And if I were to come to you and you say, and I were to come to you and say, how are you doing? How are you doing this morning? And you were to say, well, let me tell you, from March to May, I haven't left my house. If Zoom, the app Zoom was a person, I would fight him. Um, I walk the same path every day, probably four times a day. I try to have conferences at work through Zoom, and they are always interrupted by my children. And I simply just miss my friends. When can I go see my friends? I would say to you, what's going on? Are you okay? But when I say that today, all of you understand that. All of you get it. All of you can show some level of sympathy there. COVID has presented a lot of problems for us, but one thing it has done is presented an ability to show sympathy unlike any other time in history. A story of not showing sympathy is a story from my own life. Jordan and I have three children. We're expecting one on the way here in about three weeks. And when our shepherd, our third son, was born, it was, it was a time where I did not show a great amount of sympathy. <clears throat> what happened was, is with our three sons prior, if you're a dad and you're, giving, you're, you're helping your wife give birth, you kind of just kind of go around to the back and you kind of encourage her, say something. You're just trying to get out of the way, okay? You're just trying to do as much as possible to just help and not be a liability or a detriment. <laughs> just being honest. For me, that's where I was, thought I was headed that day as we gave birth to Shepherd. So I'm gowning up, and as I kind of veered back to give, it was, when it was time to push, I was kind of wanted to go around Jordan to help her deliver. My doctor said, nope, you're, you're delivering this one. You're catching this one. And before I could say what, I kind of was steered away and I had to kind of just prep myself with about two minutes. So they talked about the hands and they talked about what you do. And I will never forget that in my entire life. Shepherd was born, we delivered him. And then as folks do when they come to visit, they would say, Jordan, how are you feeling? How was the birth? How was the baby doing? And, excuse me, and... Jordan would say, you know, I'm feeling okay. I'm, I'm doing all right. And then my, me in my unsympathetic nature and ignorance say, well, you think she has it bad. You know, I delivered him. And, uh, and everyone's like, okay. And, and, and I was like, you know, you should have seen it. And I just kept talking on and on and on. 
And then more people would come into the room and I would say, well, let me tell you about my, my experience. You know, you think she has it bad? I'm the real hero. And eventually Jordan just said, I love you, sweetheart, but you've just got to stop. I'm the one in the bed, can't, unable to walk. You're around here just blabbing your mouth. Um, what's the point? I wasn't sympathetic there. I didn't show her the sympathy that she needed and deserved. My point is this. It's one thing to see someone else's temptation or pain. It's a whole nother thing to walk through it. It's one thing to see someone else go through something, but if you and I are to step in their feet and to step in their shoes and to walk that exact same experience, you get a whole new insight. Why do I bring this up? One of the great lies and temptations in the Christian life is to believe that God is present. He's there when the market is up, when finances are going well, when children are behaving, when life is good, when singleness is great, when marriage is thriving. But when things are going wrong, when the bottom feels like it's about to fall out, when I don't know how I'm I'm gonna make my next dollar, when everything is going wrong, the temptation is to believe that God has no idea what you're going through, that God has never been tempted that way. That God simply is aloof. It's, we believe that God is like what Winston Churchill said of his father when asked, what's your dad like? Winston Churchill simply replied, my dad is like God, off busy else, some, somewhere else. We can often believe that that is what God is like. But this is a lie. We're actually gonna see in these three passages that there is simply nothing further from the truth. To recap, in Hebrews, the author gives a great warning to the people he's writing to. And he gives that warning by recalling what happened to the people of Israel, how they went through the Red Sea, how they've had such a spiritual experience following God and how God seeks to dwell with them in the tabernacle and by the giving of the law. But that some of them didn't enter into that rest that he provided. And that the author in verse 13 says that everyone stands exposed before a holy God who sees all. It's terrifying. But then in these three verses, he comforts us. Martin Luther said of these, of chapter four, he says, first the apostle, he terrifies us. But then he comforts us. He first puts wine into our wound, but then he bandages it with oil. Friends, What the author is about to say in these three verses are of such a comfort that I believe that if you truly believe them deeply, it will change our engagement and our relationship with God in ways that will change our life. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're gonna be reading Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. I'll read this aloud. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You can respond and then I'll pray and you can have a seat. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord.
Let's pray. Holy Father, God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, Jesus, we thank you for your work. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here and that, God, you are moving around us. God, that you are working in each one of our individual lives in different ways. And, and Lord, help us to be moved with sympathy with others. God, that this word would, would impress on us and change us to be more sympathetic with our neighbor, with our spouse, with our children. Lord, help us to be moved by your deep compassion and sympathy and love for us. God, we know that the, in the Christian experience, there are many times where it feels so hard to hold fast our confidence in you, in our confession of you, and to draw near to you. Holy Spirit, we know that you're present here. Please comfort those who are mourning. And God, please disrupt the false comfort for those who are just simply too comfortable in their relationship with you. God, we know that no one is here by accident, but God, that you are sovereign over all and that everyone here is here by design. God, we love you. We love your word and thank you for its ministering power. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more and to apply this to our life that we would be deeply changed by it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Well, we're gonna be looking at the author's, essentially his thesis, his main argument. If you were to think of this sermon in terms of a three-part, we're gonna look at his thesis. He's, He's making an argument for one thing, holding fast your confession of faith. Don't lose heart. Hold fast to your confession of Jesus. But in order to do that, he's going to ask us to consider something and then to do something. So we have a thesis and we have a, he's going to encourage us to look and to consider something about who Jesus is. And then he's going to ask us based on who Jesus is to do something. Hold fast our confession. That's where we're going first. Time Magazine about three years ago, said what modern man needs most, what modern humanity needs most is a priest. Isn't that interesting? A priest. If some of you may have not grown up in a Catholic background or some of you may have grown up in a Catholic background, but nonetheless, I did. And even in myself, there was impressed a kind of confusion about what does a priest do? What is the functional role of a priest? We all have stereotypes of a priest. Someone who listens to us, listens to to a confession, listens to sin. Someone who wears just a big white cloak. Someone who kind of sees, oversees a a diocese, uh, a, a church or a group of churches. There's confusion about what a priest does. And this, this word kind of can fall on deaf ears to some of us. But what the author, I think, and what Time Magazine was making an argument is that What you and I need most is for someone to listen to us, someone to hear us, someone not to say to hear us and then try to fix you immediately or to say, how wrong are you or how dare you complain about this or how dare you have done this, but someone to first listen to us, to listen to us, how we're doing, what's going on in our life, what is the biggest burden in your life, or to listen and say, I've, I've done this, help me. I believe that that's what the, the author of the Time article meant. But nonetheless, this falls, this word can be confusing for us. However, the recipients of this letter were not confused on what a priest meant. 
Remember, if, if you have been following along, we looked at uh, Exodus and we looked at the priesthood in Exodus 25 through 32 and, and what the priest function meant. What was his role? And something that is, again, what we do not understand in, in our modern culture is something that the Jew, Jewish people and people who received this letter understood innately. And it's this. You cannot come into God's presence without a sacrifice. God is holy. God is blameless. He will not tolerate sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so therefore, the priestly role was a representative of the people. I won't get into all of the requirements, all of the cleansing, all of the the attire that he had to wear. But essentially, the, the priest functioned as a representative of the people to God. That he would sacrifice an animal to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. He would enter into the tabernacle, into the inner court. He would wash himself and purify himself. Then, after doing all of, his, all of the instructions that God instructed him to do, he would enter in beyond the curtain. And we saw that, that word, uh, that phrase in chapter three, to go beyond the curtain. What does that mean? He went beyond a curtain. When we think of a curtain, we think of something like just a curtain that's in my house. It's maybe not even but a fourth of an inch thick. Most scholars says that this curtain was four inches thick. What's the point? It's, it's making a clear divide that there's only one person who can go beyond the curtain to atone for the sacrifice. And this happened one day of the year. It's called Yom Kippur. And he would go beyond and sacrifice an animal to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. They understood this. They understood that I need a representative on my behalf. I'm not worthy to go beyond the curtain. I need someone to represent me and to atone for my sin. The biblical role implies that you understand something. It presupposes that you understand you and God stand on opposite ends of a canyon, that there's a chasm between you and God, that you and I have a massive need, and that that can only be atoned for by a priest, a need to not only know that I have a relationship with God where he loves me and I love him, and and by his glory we are satisfied and that I love him, but that also that our sin is atoned for. The priestly role stands in that gap. In ancient times, the king represented God to the people, but the high priest, in biblical sense, represented the people to God. And while we're calling the priesthood to this audience, which they're having all types of, of, of context that they understand coming into their mind, he says he's not a, a high priest. He's not the chief high priest. He is the great high priest priest, a great high priest. He's saying, don't give up your confession that Jesus is Lord. Hold on to your confession of him. He was a great high priest. If you think about a defense, right? Uh, uh, A defense, a, a legal defense. What better defense, what better person to mediate on your behalf than the son of God who stands and intercedes and pleads for you right now? Right now, friends, what a representative that I stood in conflict with a holy God condemned. I need a representation. That representation is not now a man. It is the son of God, Jesus, second person of the Trinity. It's God himself, God's son, who doesn't sit in a place that represents the presence of God. He is in fact at the right hand of God now, pleading for you and I. Is that not glorious? That is amazing. 
And not only that, he is at a place that he seeks to take you eventually. Listen in John 14, one through three. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Friends, that is your high priest now. That is someone who is mediating on your behalf now. That's someone who wants you to draw near to him now. That's someone who loves you now. This is the very heart and thesis of these three verses that we're studying. Hold fast to your confession. Don't give up. But why? Why does he make, why is that his thesis? Friends, the reason that is his thesis is because often in the Christian life, it, is, it can often feel impossible to hold on to your confession as a Christian. You know, there are things that many of you are going through, temptations, frustrations, trials, where you say, I don't know. I just, it is so hard to be a Christian. I know many people in this room who are facing that right now. You know, we, if you, some Christians, I think, naively will say, you know, belief is so easy. Friends, belief in Christ and following Jesus is not easy. You and I know that if you've walked with him long enough. That not only is faith in believing in Christ a gift, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that it's a gift, but also persevering in the faith, which is a call of every Christian to persevere, to hold fast. That too is a gift. That too is a gift. John Piper, who if you don't know who he is, he's a, just a well-known author and pastor, has written many books and has a, a ministry that has just simply been helpful to many people. In 2012, at a conference, he got up to give a talk and his first saying, his first sentence was this, I am amazed that I am still a Christian and that I am a Christian is only due to the fact that God has preserved me. Friends, the Christian life can often be an experience where you find yourself in spots where holding fast to that confession feels impossible. And the Christian life can often feel so disappointing. You know, your church, your, your friends are gonna disappoint you. Your spouse in the Christian life is gonna disappoint you. Your family is gonna disappoint you. Heck, your church will disappoint you. You will disappoint you. But Jesus will never disappoint you. Jesus is a great high priest. And I think a proper question we need to ask is, what will you do when your faith is tested and tempted? For instance, when your family, whom none are Christians, look at your newfound faith and wonder, why are you spending so much time reading your Bible? Why are you going to church? Why are you wasting your time on this? I know many college students who have in, in, encountered that type of temptation. When your employer feels that your biblical convictions of trying to be honest, trying to do the right thing, simply aren't conducive to this workplace environment, it, it may not be a good fit. These are things that happen on a regular basis. Or temptations to deny your faith 
or else we will kill you. Friends, this is something that we don't really experience, but it is very true today in parts of the 1040 window, which is a section of the map where Christianity and the gospel is, is hardly preached or where there are very little churches. Friends, this is a real thing. You know, the enemy would love for us to be blindsided by this temptation. And regarding the enemy, we think the devil's schemes are obvious. If you want to look for the devil, just look for a pitchfork, hoofs, and horns, right? But the enemy's temptations are subtle. They're not obvious. His temptations can often be the easiest solution or the one most people agree with. Friends, Satan does not come in pitchfork, hoofs, and horns. He comes, as 2 Corinthians 11 says, in an in a angel of light. You know, one, one person said that Satan does not attack by fangs in the flesh, but lies in the heart. And we have all faced that. We have all faced the temptation to say, I don't know if I can do this anymore. It's felt every day. And you ask yourself, how will I hold fast to our confession? And the answer is, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who hasn't passed through the heavens. What does that mean? He's recalling to them a tabernacle imagery. He hasn't passed through the outer court, into the inner court, into the curtain. He's passed through the heavens. He sits at the right hand of God and he ever lives to plead for you. And not only that, but that he has sympathy for you. Friends, that is amazing. This was the author's thesis, his exhortation to hold fast. He calls us to do that. In order to do that, he calls us to consider something and next to do something. Consider the sympathy of Jesus and then with confidence he purchased, draw near. Let's look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's hard to, to describe how this would have been heard for uh, first century Jewish people, but this would have been, um, this would have been mind-boggling for them. Why? Well, during this time, you had different schools of thought, different philosophies that they would have been uh, exposed to. For instance, Stoicism, right? Stoicism believed that the primary attribute of God was apatheia. That means it's the inability to feel anything at all. They reasoned that if he could feel, he could be controlled by others and therefore he would be less than God, right? So, so in Stoicism, God is apathetic. Or you had Epicureanism, which just meant that God dwelt between the world and the universe, universe, and he is detached from everything. He is detached from feeling for you. He is detached from everything. That belief still reigns in Buddhism. The, the, core, the core problem, if we have problems in life or we engage in temptation, is you are over-attached. There is too much attachment in your life. The solution in Buddhism is to detach yourself from loving. Detach yourself from love of spouse, love of children, love of possessions, love of work, whatever it may be. That's your problem. But we see here that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, a great high priest, is not detached. He's very attached to you. That he is not apathetic to you. He's very sympathetic to you. Or let's consider Jewish belief before Jesus that, that Yahweh is God, he is majestic, and he is holy. But to say that he is sympathetic and, and that Jesus is the high priest, this would have been confusing. 
Right? They have verses like Isaiah 57, 15 says this, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Or think about this. He, okay, so we see he's high and holy. Or First Kings 8, 27, when Solomon is bringing the ark and building the temple, he says to God, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Or Psalm 97, 5, which says this, the mountains melt like wax before you, before the Lord of the earth. Or Isaiah 6, when Isaiah enters into the temple and sees the train of God, God's robe, and he sees angels flying around, screaming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And he sees the, the cherubim and the seraphim guard their face not to be burned by God's holiness. They understood that God was holy. And what the author is saying is that this same God who is so holy and so majestic and so powerful has yet walked on earth and walked in your shoes and has been tempted in every way possible that you have, yet without sin. Friends, that is such a comfort to us as we engage in a life that throws all types of temptations, whether that be the devil, whether that be our sinful flesh, whether that be the things that we can go to in the world that are not and do not cater to our walk with God. That is such a, such a comfort. You know, if we look, okay, if we look at the word weaknesses, it's probably natural for us to say, okay, weaknesses, that means sufferings, right? God has sympathy for our sufferings. Yes, of course, but in the Greek, that's not the word he uses. One commentator says, in the Greek, the word weaknesses is not sufferings, but weaknesses, moral and physical, which predispose to sin and facilitate it. This means that he is sympathetic to your temptations to sin, albeit against him, and invites you to draw near. Friends, this can be a problem, though, because it's one thing to believe God. It's one thing to believe that God wants me to draw near. It's a whole other thing to feel confident to do that, to actually draw near. Why? Because all of us have secrets, right? All of us have things in our life that we are deeply ashamed by. All of us have things, sins that we don't want to talk about, that we dare not tell anybody. Things that if, if were to be found out in our life or about our character, we would be so embarrassed. And, and you just don't want to tell a lot of people. Nor, nor should, you, should you do that probably. You know, in the Christian life, there, there are things such as respectable sins, right? What, what does that mean? What is respectable sins? It's when you're in a, in a church setting or around friends from church or in a community group. Well, what are you struggling with, brother or sister? And you say, well, you know, I just care too much. You know, I just, man. Or, or you know, or even just things that are true. You know, I'm struggling with pride. Or, you know, I, I, I use language I, I shouldn't. And those things are good and those, that's encouraging to confess. But you're probably not in that setting gonna say something like this. You know, my entire life, I've had a life-dominating sin of alcoholism. I'm a substance abuser. And I've struggled with this my entire life. Or, you know, I have depression. And it has dominated my life for so long. 
and I don't feel like anybody understands what I'm going through. Or I am so angry. I'm angry at what happened growing up. I'm angry at my spouse. I'm angry. I'm angry all the time. You know, those things, we, we just not share those regularly. And while I think it's, it's probably appropriate not to share them with everyone, my question is, is there someone that you're sharing those with? And more importantly, are you sharing those with God? You know, the great lie is that we believe those things, those secret sins, those unrespectable sins, prevent us from drawing near. They disqualify you. But friends, those are the things that qualify you to come to him. Those are the things that he wants you to come to him with. Those are the things that he, he has paid for and is going to work out and give you victory by the cross. And not coming to God with those things means that you miss out on a tremendous blessing. You know, objection to this can be, well, how can you say that Jesus knows exactly what I'm going through? He, wasn't, he was sinless. There's a part of my experience that he simply just does not get. But actually the opposite is true. It's actually his obedience enduring the same temptation allows him to perfectly sympathize with us. You know, if, you, if, if you're a Christian in here and you're the type of person that listens to people a lot, you can often be a sounding board for people. You listen to their problems. You try to be a, a person that can help people and people do that to you. Eventually what you're gonna start to realize is that we are not the perfect counselors that, that we would like to be, right? No matter, even the person that I have, I have seen over a course of 10 years or, or five years he would still say, you know, I am still flawed. My wisdom and my counsel is still not perfect and it never will be. If you've talked with people and you've counseled people, what you start to see is emotions and sins that can come up. We get upset, we get self-protective, we can get impatient, we can get annoyed by the same thing brought to us, we can get angry. Or at a certain point, you can turn your ears off emotionally. You can talk with people and their pain and their circumstance can be so hard that eventually there's, there's just gonna be a separation that happens emotionally where you don't stop hearing them physically, but you try to make a barrier where their pain doesn't, doesn't come onto you and affect you, that their pain doesn't now become your pain. This is a reality, but Jesus will never do that. Jesus always has an ear that is open to your pain and your temptation and being the only one tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, makes him the perfect sympathizer. He has, listen, he has all of the experiences that create sympathy, but he has none of the sin that eats up sympathy in his life. He has all of the experiences that create sympathy for you, but he has none of the sin that eats it up. He knows what it's like to be tempted, to lust, to be angry, to be impatient, to be covetous of someone else's possessions, to lie, to cheat in every way you have and more. C.S. Lewis says this, we have, ne- we have never found out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the man who knows to the full what temptation means. I wanna re- read off the temptations just so that we get an understanding of what Christ went through in his life and that he is perfectly able to sympathize with you. Let me read these, this reality of his life and these temptations. In Matthew 8, he was homeless. In Matthew 12, <clears throat> Mark 3 and John 7, we see that his, fa- his family 
excuse me, thought he was crazy. In Matthew 26, his best friends turned their back on him. In Matthew 26, one of his closest confidants sold him out to be killed for pocket change. Luke 4, we see he stood face to face with the devil and endured all of the demonic tricks. In John 11, we see that he, he often dealt with death. In Matthew 12, he endured gossip and slander. In John 15, he endured suffering for righteousness' sake. In Mark 14, he was shamed publicly. He was shamed publicly. He endured periods of hunger in Mark 11. He received criticism of his ministry in John 5. His theology was mocked, just pick a verse. Uh, His message was rejected, just pick one. His preaching was critiqued. At the most crucial time, people that he has been discipling for three years at the most important time of his ministry flat out did not get it. You know, it's almost foolishness to say, God, you have no idea what I'm going through. You have never been tempted the way I have. When the reverse is true, it's we who have never been tempted like he has. It's we who don't understand what he went through. But why did he go through it? Why did he endure such temptation? Why in Luke 4, when he is tempted by the devil, and and there's so much I could talk about on that, but the devil literally lays out temptation that you and I could never imagine. He says, "Make make stones into bread. He says, fall off that temple and you know angels will catch you. What is the devil trying to do? He's trying to short circuit the plan of salvation. He's saying, I will give you everything that you're gonna get. Let's just short circuit going to the cross. Be an example, don't be a savior. We can get to the mountain without the valleys. We can get to the crown, but you don't need to go to a cross. There is no no temptation that we will ever experience quite like what Jesus experienced. Or in Gethsemane when he's, bleeding, sweating drops of blood. If there's any way this cup can pass from me, let it pass. But why does he go through it? Why does he say, but not my will, Father, yours? And why on the cross does he stay there and pray for you and I and those soldiers and say, they know not what they do. He does it for you and I. He does it because he loves you. He does it to glorify God And he did it, and by the cross, he purchased a confidence for you and I, that you and I can come to God with, listen, boldness on account of Jesus. Friends, in Christ, you're pleasing to God. Did you hear that? In Christ, you are pleasing to God. You're not tolerable. You're not permitted just to come. You don't have access. You're pleasing to him. Intuitively, we think that those dark secrets that God In light of those, God will shoo us away. I don't have time for you. But the opposite is true. God always wants you to come closer. Come closer. Come closer. You know, the word in the Greek for confidence, it it denotes a picture of two citizens having an open discussion, a very heated dialogue in public. One commentator says it means bold frankness. And here's my favorite interpretation. Pouring out your heart. Who do you pour out your heart to? Who are you most, who do you confide in? Who are you most honest with about the hardest things in your life? It's typically someone who's gonna be able to handle your stuff, who understands you, who you know they really love you, and they're not gonna immediately say, what are you doing, you knucklehead? What are you doing? Why would you do that? Or, or say, 
well, at least you have this. What are you griping about? No, it's, it's someone that you trust and you love. And the author is saying that you and I must have that kind of relationship with God. Friends, that is amazing. That is simply amazing. And my question to myself when I read this and to you is, are you doing that? Are you drawing near? Are you drawing near? If we don't look at the word confidence and are simply amazed by that, say, how can I be confident for for God? Oh, but on the sake of Jesus, I go. Then something is off. If we are not brought to our knees, the fact that we can have confidence before God, then either two things are true, that we need to repent of things that are wowing us that should not be wowing us, or the other is true, that we simply do not understand the gospel and we are not Christians. Grace must never get old. The grace of Jesus must never get old to us, friends. If you say, no, I, I, I get it, I, I get it. Sure, I'm, I get it, I'm sinful. Friends, no, we don't get it. Uh, we used to do this, I used to work in college ministry and we would use this analogy where we would say, what if we put you in assembly hall and we put you on a throne and on a big mega, and we invited a thousand of your family and friends and we, on the teleprompter, we showed every single thing that you ever did, said, or thought. Would you want to be there? <laughs> no. No, none of us would want to be there. And that's so true. But friends, you and I also know that at least for me, it wouldn't be my entire life. It would just be last week. It would just, there are things that happened last week, sins that I've committed that I am deeply regretful for being impatient with my kids, not listening to my wife, not working as hard as I could, not being slow to, slow to anger, quick to speak, quick to anger, or uh, slow to listen, excuse me. <laughs> you get it? <laughs> but, God, but friends, those things are sin, and we stand before a holy God. But Jesus, the great high priest, he says, I took it all. Left to yourself, you have zero room for confidence. But in Christ, you have all the confidence that Jesus has. I'm glad, and you should be too, that he's our high priest, who you can talk to about anything, and he's absolutely accessible. But more than that, I'm so happy that he's perfect. He succeeded where I failed and will fail. I mean, what good does it do to talk to someone who will simply just fail like you do? On some level, there's still a sin that needs to be atoned for. But friends, Jesus, the gospel says that you and I can draw near, be confident and pour out our hearts to the very one who died for your sin, to bring us to God. Our high priest is both sympathetic and victorious. In Christ, you're never gonna hear, you disgust me, how could you struggle with that? You're gonna hear, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will put you back together again. And more importantly, in verse 16, we're gonna end with, in, in, with this. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you come to Jesus, you get two things. You get grace and mercy. You get grace, which you don't deserve, and mercy, which you need. How do Christians fight and have victory, which God calls us to have? By drawing near, friends. The more I draw near, the more I see him for who he is. 
which helps me hold fast my confession. And the more that I do that, all the more will I be able to fight my sin and obey God. Friends, drawing near is the reason why we can hold fast our confession. Let me end with this. We just studied Exodus. God leads his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and gets to a land and he gives them the law and he only allows Moses to go up to the mountain and he says to everyone, not so close. If you come within six feet, you will die. What is he saying? We're not holy. We have no reason to be confident before God. But now, the author is almost pleading with you to come as close to God as you can. Why? What's the difference? Jesus. Jesus is the difference. There is a human who has been tempted just as you are, who fully knows your temptation, who died for you, and because of him, the author says, come as close as you can. Because of who Jesus is, we are to hold fast, and because of who Jesus is, you and I can draw near. There's no one like him, folks. He's our counselor, our mediator, our representative, our friend, our sympathizer. I ask you, is he your confidence in here? Have you trusted in Jesus by faith? Every other worldview is gonna tell you to live a good life and give it to God. But the gospel and what sets Christianity apart is our high priest who says, no, I live the perfect life and I give it to you by faith. Have you accepted that? Have you received Christ's life by faith? When we stand before the judgment seat of God, either two things are true. Either we will represent ourselves, we will rely on our own morality, which will lead to eternal separation from God, or we can trust in our high priest who lived the life we never could have lived, loved us, was tempted in every way we are and will be, and was perfect. You know, the old saying is, the old song is true. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but who? Jesus. Friends, hold fast to him. Hold fast by drawing near in confidence. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you and I can, we can be confident before you, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, our great high priest. God, we need to believe this. As some of us, most of us, all of us will be in parts of life where holding fast to our confession feels impossible. God, help this word to have an impact on us. Holy Spirit, would you apply this word to our lives? God, would we be able to show sympathy to one another? That we would be a people and a community that loves one another and sympathetic to one another and listens to one another. God, we thank you for your word. God, as we enter into the Lord's Supper, help us to remember that, God, we are people who are bought by the, by the body and blood of Jesus, that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Help us to view our lives as a missional agent to spread the good news that there's someone who has been tempted in every way who loves you and sympathetic to you but demands your life by faith. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.